As we continue in worship now, we're going to turn to God's Word. As we've been looking at Advent this year, at our celebration of Christmas, the way we've been doing it is by looking at it through the book of Isaiah. The prophet Isaiah had a lot to tell us about Jesus Christ, what he would be when he came, what he would do when he came. And so we've seen that the greatest problem in all of the earth was the problem of human sin. We've seen that Jesus is God coming in the flesh in order to rescue us in the midst of that problem. And then this morning, we are going to see how Jesus ultimately resolved that problem by dying upon the cross for us. And again, this was all foretold hundreds of years before it happened by the prophet Isaiah. And so our main text is going to be Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, verse 12. Ryan will read that for us. And there we'll see exactly how God intended to rid us of sin. From there, we'll go to John 1, 29 and 31, the first proclamation about who Jesus is as Jesus was a man in the New Testament. From there, we'll go to 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Aiden will read that for us. And then lastly, Psalm 103, 11 and 12. And Sherry will read that for us. And again, in all these things, what we want to see is how God intended to remove sin from us. So let me pray now that God would help me to proclaim God's word and that we'd help all of us to understand clearly his word as it's read and as it's preached. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would come and that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we can see your word rightly, so that faith will rise in our hearts instead of doubt and instead of skepticism. Lord, as we read these verses and as these verses are proclaimed to us, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts whereby we find just new hope, new peace with you because of the truth that we read here. God, I pray for anyone here right now who has never believed in these truths, Lord, that you would do a miraculous work in their hearts, God, that they would come to believe that Jesus indeed died for their sins. And so, God, awaken us all to the glory of this reality. Help us to believe in you now as your word is read. Help me to proclaim your word faithfully, that the dead may come to life and that those who have life may receive more joy and peace by the Holy Spirit in you. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 52, starting in verse 13 through chapter 53, verse 12. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what they heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is John chapter 1, verses 29 through 31. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel. I came baptizing in water. Second Corinthians uh, chapter five twenty one, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Psalm 103 verses 11 and 12, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, So far has he removed our transgressions from us. Well, if you are here this morning and you identify as a Christian, then I assume that you know the gospel. And I say that because part of the definition of being a Christian is trusting in the gospel, trusting in the good news of Jesus Christ. And you cannot trust in something that you do not know. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, then you do know the gospel. And if you do not know the gospel, and you think you are a Christian, well, let me just encourage you right now to open your ears to the message this morning so that you can clearly hear the gospel message and be saved and truly trust in him. 
One of the claims that is central to the gospel, indeed probably the claim that is most central to the gospel, is a claim that was made here in Isaiah 53, verse 6, where it says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Quite simply, what we as Christians believe is that there was a punishment that was due to us because of our sin. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that he bore that punishment in our place. He bore our sin, our iniquity. It was all laid upon him. So that now we are free from the threat of punishment. And we are free to live in relationship, in the presence of God, without guilt or fear or shame. Beloved, this is glorious news. This is the good news. This is the gospel. And in some sense, I don't believe that we will ever exhaust the glory of this reality or what it means for our lives, how it should change our lives. Because it is this reality, the reality of Christ's substitutionary death for us that causes our hearts to overflow in love for him, that causes us to know peace with God, that causes us to have joy in our hearts, that causes us to have rest from our labors, from our striving, that lets us know that we are adopted children of God. The list could go on and on. The effects of this glorious work of Jesus Christ in dying for our sins is full of glory and majesty. Again, this is the news that turns our lives upside down. This is the news that when we really get it into our heads and into our hearts, we cannot be the same sort of people. We must live differently because we have beheld the love of God in Christ Jesus. And precisely because so much rests upon this truth, because so much rests upon this reality of Christ's substitutionary death for us, I believe that it's worth pausing and considering this reality in detail. This detailed consideration that I want to give to this truth this morning is most fundamentally concerned with the question, is this really true? Is it really true that Christ bore our sins upon his body on the cross? Is that actually what the Bible teaches? This is a critical question, is it not? So much rides upon it. But second, I think I also want us to understand how this works. How do we make sense of this reality in our minds and in our hearts that Christ bore our sins upon himself? Now, why would we want to pause and consider how this punishment of Christ on our behalf works? Well, I want to submit to you at least three reasons why it's important for us as believers to understand how it works that Christ could bear our sins upon the cross. First, it's important for us to understand how it works because the Bible tells us how it works. The Bible speaks on this subject, and the Bible is God's word to us. And so if the Bible is God's word to us, then it must be important for us to know. God is wise, and he does not waste his breath. 
And so we can be assured that if God spoke on this subject, then it is important for us to understand this subject. So simply the fact that the Bible reveals it should be enough for us to want to receive it and understand it. The second reason why I think it's important for us to know how this imputation of our sin to Christ works is because often knowing how something works can increase our confidence or trust in that thing. So for example, I have a car that is a manual transmission. Now when I first learned to drive a car that was a manual transmission, I did not know anything about what a transmission was, why it was in a car, what it was supposed to do, or anything like that. And so I would dutifully go from one to two to three to four just because people told me that's what I was supposed to do, but I had no idea why I was doing it or what cases I should do something otherwise. But over the years, as I've driven a manual transmission, I've come to at least a rudimentary understanding of what a transmission is and what it's supposed to do. So now I don't only need to go one to two to three to four. I can kind of understand what's going on under the hood. And so I have more confidence in my driving and I'm able to use my car in a much better way than I was at the beginning. In the same way, I believe that if we come to a clear understanding of what's actually going on, and the imputation of our sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to us, then we will be able to live with more freedom and joy because we will understand exactly what God has done in putting our sins upon Christ. So that's the second reason why I want us to understand something of the mechanics of what is going on when Isaiah says that our iniquity was laid upon him. And then, Finally, the last reason why I want us to take some time this morning to look at how Christ's substitution works is because we are presently living in an age of less and less awareness of Christian teaching and less agreement upon even a Judeo-Christian moral framework for the world. And so maybe many years ago, Billy Graham could say something like, Jesus died for your sins and everybody could nod in thankfulness and agreement. But today, if you say Jesus died for your sins, you're more likely to be met with confusion or even repulsion that we would believe that. One moment I don't think I'll ever forget in my uh, pre-Christian life, I was trying to do an evangelistic Bible study with one of my friends in high school, and I I was a pre-Christian then, so I was a non-Christian trying to talk to another non-Christian about Jesus. Uh, We were reading through the Gospel of John together. Uh, My friend was one of my friends from choir. She had absolutely no Christian background whatsoever. Her family was as secular as you could get. So we were reading through the Gospel of John, and we got to the verse that we read just a little while ago about Jesus being the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so I tried to explain to her what that meant. You know, that a, a lamb was a sacrificial lamb, and in the sacrificial system, The lamb would be killed, and when the lamb was killed, that would be payment for the sins of the people, so that then the people would be forgiven. And I'll always just remember how she looked at me, and she just said, well, that's messed up. What did that poor lamb do wrong to deserve that? And so this this reality that all my life, I thought of this beautiful and wonderful thing that my parents had taught me since I was a baby, this friend of mine 
thought was just a sign of wickedness and injustice. And I had no clue what to say to her about why that was okay for a lamb to be killed for someone else's sins. And so if you are faithfully talking to others about the good news of Jesus, as you should be, then you will probably hear objections to the system that God has set up, where the sins of one can be imputed to another. And perhaps what is even more important is that as you yourself think about this doctrine, you may, over the years, hear certain misconstruals of the doctrine or certain objections to the doctrine. And if you have not heard before how this works, how it fits together, then you yourself are likely to dive into doubt and even despair. And so the third reason why I want to take some time this morning to look at how this works is so that you will be prepared to give an answer to those who may have objections and so that you yourself will not fall into doubt when you hear something that perhaps surprises you or stuns you. So as we go into this now, first let's take a moment and look at this passage of Isaiah that we've read to lay down the basics of the doctrine that I want to call penal substitutionary atonement. It's the name that theologians have given to this doctrine for many years, penal substitutionary atonement, and so it is worth us knowing because, again, it is close to the heart of the gospel. Now, we see this doctrine taught very clearly in Isaiah. In fact, in these passages, these verses that we just read, we see it repeated no less than 11 different times. So let me just list for you the specific verses, the specific phrases where Isaiah talks about penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that our sins have been laid upon another. So Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, he has borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. Verse 6. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 8. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. Verse 10. His soul makes an offering for guilt. Verse 11, and he shall bear their iniquities. And then finally, verse 12, yet he bore the sin of many. So you can see this idea that our iniquities, our sins are laid upon Jesus Christ is not some minor note here in Isaiah 53. No, it is the primary message. It is repeated over and over again. This passage in Isaiah is part of what is called the the servant book in Isaiah. The first half of the book of Isaiah is often referred to as the book of the king because in that part of Isaiah, when it talks about the coming Messiah, Messiah, it talks about him mostly as this glorious and reigning king, even as we read last week in Isaiah 9. And we'll look at Isaiah 9 a little more closely next week, that the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be a wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. We see this glorious picture of the Messiah. 
But then again, we come to 53 and we read about this servant. This servant who will bear the sins of many. He will be crushed and he will be despised. These pictures of the Messiah are so different that many Jewish people, even to this day, think that Isaiah is actually talking about two different people. They don't imagine that there is just one person coming to both deal with sin and to reign as king. They think that one person is coming, the one who will be the true Messiah, who will be the king, who will hold the sword, who will free Israel from its oppressors, who will reign forever and ever, that that is truly the Messiah. But they think that because Isaiah prophesies this different figure, this one that he calls the servant in Isaiah 52 verse 13, they think that this second person is coming as the servant in order to somehow bear the sins of the people. And they could not understand, they could not fathom how these two individuals could possibly be one in the same. And yet again, when Jesus was born into that manger, When he was born into poverty and into obscurity, only then could we see clearly how this same one could be despised and rejected by men and could also be the one who will have the government upon his shoulder. So notice five things that Isaiah tells us about this servant, about this idea of Jesus bearing our griefs, bearing our transgressions, our iniquities. First, notice that in all of these verses that I have read, it says that Jesus is said to bear something or carry something. This seems to be just another way of saying that something was laid upon Jesus that was foreign to him. The same way that when you put on a backpack, that backpack is not then part of you. Rather, it's something that's different than you that you are carrying. In that way, sins which did not belong to Jesus, that were not part of his nature, were laid upon him in the same way that a backpack could be laid upon our backs. That's why Isaiah uses this verb, to bear or to carry. Second, notice that the thing that Jesus is said to bear or carry is our sin. Again, Isaiah uses many different words here. Words that are close to the same meaning that he uses. He says transgressions, iniquities, guilt. All of these words are speaking of our sins that are laid upon Jesus Christ. But for Isaiah, and I pray that for you too, it's even larger than just our sins or our wrongdoings that were placed upon Jesus. Again, in 53 verse 4, we see that Isaiah also says that our grief or our sorrow was laid upon Jesus. And beloved, this does bring us precisely to the message of Christmas. Why do we say that Christmas is a time of joy and rejoicing? Why did the angels proclaim to the shepherds that there was good news of great joy? Well, precisely because of this, that the baby to be born would carry away our sorrows and our griefs. He would carry away our sins and our iniquities. You see, our sins and iniquities are not merely moral failings that we have. No, they are things that ruin our lives and ruin the world around us. They are the source of sorrow in the world. 
And so even as he bears away our sins, he also bears away our sorrow. Third, notice in particular in these verses whose sin is laid upon Jesus. Verses 4 and 5 say that it is our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, our iniquities. Verse 6 says that it is the iniquity of us all. Verse 8 says the transgression of my people. Verse 12 says he bore the sins of many. So the sin that is getting imputed to Jesus, the sin that Jesus is carrying or bearing, again, is not his own. It's other people's sins that are laid upon him. This is very clear in Isaiah. Fourth, notice the result of Jesus carrying our sin. Verse 5 says that upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. So we get peace. Verse 6 says, with his wounds we are healed. So we get healing. So all of those whose pain and sorrow and sin and guilt are laid upon Jesus, all of those whose sins Jesus bear, they all get healing and peace and joy and life. And fifth and finally, Notice who does all this, who orchestrates and arranges it. It is God himself. Verse 6 says that the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 says it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. And so God is the one who puts this burden of sin upon Jesus Christ so that we can go free. And thus, these five elements make up our doctrine, our understanding of penal substitutionary atonement, the very heart of the gospel. Jesus, the innocent one, gets someone else's sin put on him so that those other people have their sin removed. Jesus bears the punishment. We bear the joy. It is a glorious exchange. It is the gospel message. Now, again, as a child, I never really questioned this teaching or had any problems with it. Indeed, even when I finally became a Christian as an adult, I very much uncritically accepted this version of events. And in retrospect, after encountering some of the objections to this teaching, I actually feel a little guilty for accepting it so uncritically. I realize that a big part of the reason why I accepted it so uncritically is because it was a great benefit to me. I'm like a person who got a good amount of money in some underhanded way, and I could ask about how it all works and how that money came to me, but then I might have to give back the money, and so I just don't ask about it. I say, thank you very much, and I hold on to it. Well, that's very much how, for many years, I looked at this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement. Well, I thought, you know, maybe there's some strange things about it, but it sure is good for me, so I think I'll just accept it and move on. Thank you very much. 
And of course, it is good and right for us to believe it. As I've just said, Isaiah at least teaches this very clearly. And every book of the New Testament teaches this very clearly. And yet, it is also somewhat mysterious. And so again, I want us to look at some of these mysteries, some of these complexities right now. In particular, I want to come at this doctrine through the lens of three objections that are often raised against it. Three objections that are often raised against it. It's probably often been your experience that many times things that you take for granted, you don't stop taking them for granted until you do hear some kind of objection to what you've heard. And then suddenly you start thinking about it and wrestling with it until you come to a new and better understanding. So that's how I want to go about it in the remainder of this message. I'm going to present us with an objection that is often raised, and then I want to show how biblically, philosophically, morally, we can answer these objections and we can set this doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement on solid ground. So the first objection that I want to look at, and probably the very first one that kind of raised my eyebrows and caused me to question, is my understanding of this really right? Is that there was a famous theologian some years ago who said that those who believe in penal substitutionary atonement believe in divine child abuse. Doesn't it seem a little cruel of God to inflict so much punishment on his own son when his own son didn't even do anything wrong? Now, this seems like a pretty good objection, does it not? It has a lot of the Bible behind it. God the Father is indeed called Father. God the Son is indeed Son. As we just read in Isaiah, we saw that it was indeed the Lord who laid All of this iniquity upon Jesus, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so is God in the wrong for crushing Jesus in this manner? Well, first, the problem with this objection to the doctrine is that it implies that there is some division, some distinction between God the Father and God the Son. It is true that when we speak of God, we use the expressions of Father and Son because those are two persons in the Godhead and those are the words used for God in Scripture. But nevertheless, that does not mean that God the Father is literally a Father to God the Son. We know that God the Son, Jesus Christ, is very God of very God. That's what I proclaimed last week, which means he had no beginning. He was not born at some set moment in time as any earthly child is born. No, God the Father and God the Son are one in their essence. Therefore, to whatever extent the Father sent the Son to suffer, the Father himself suffered. This was no case of God the Father taking something out on God the Son. God the Father was there with Jesus upon that cross just as much as Jesus himself was upon that cross. John 10 verse 30 very plainly says, I and the Father are one. So there is no distinction between God the Father and God the Son that God the Father is doing something to God the Son that Jesus does not want or that he does not accept. No, Jesus 
was willing to go to the cross for us. He was eager to obey the Father's will. And so there is no abuse of the Son in Jesus' death upon a cross. The Father went with him. The Father's heart loved us just as much as Jesus' heart did. But the second problem with this idea of penal substitutionary atonement being divine child abuse is that the word abuse also implies some level of rage or overreaction. Abuse is, by definition, overly harsh or harmful to whoever is abused. And yet again, this misunderstands the person of God, who he is. God never loses control of his emotions. He never overreacts to some minor offense. God's emotions are perfectly calibrated toward justice. He gets angriest and fiercest regarding those things which are truly the worst and the most evil. And he is patient and slow to anger regarding all offenses, especially those which are less severe. And so when God crucified Jesus upon that cross, it was not a momentary flash of rage, of anger against sin. No, it was the deliberate considerations of what justice required. Jeremiah 9.24 teaches us that God's emotions are positively oriented toward the good. It says, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says the Lord. The Lord delights in love and justice and righteousness. He delights in what is good. Again, his heart is properly calibrated to what is right and to what is wrong. On the negative side, toward our sin, we see that the Lord's mercy and patience is continually there. To give just one example, Joel 2 verse 13, God says, Rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. And so again, when God crucified Jesus upon that cross, it was not some momentary rage. It was not something that God overstepped his bounds only to regret it a moment later. No, again, he knew what justice required and he could have relented if that was the right thing for him to do. Joel says that he relents over disaster. And yet God, in his patience, in his wisdom, And his perfect love continued in the punishment of his son for your sake and for mine. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. This describes God above all other beings, beloved. All of us lose our temper sometime. All of us lose control of our emotions sometimes. But God never loses control. God never overreacts. He rules his spirit. He is always slow to anger. And so we know that the punishment that was laid upon Christ 
was reasoned and precise as the consequence of the sin of mankind. Jesus Christ did not shed one drop of blood out of proportion to the sins that we had committed. It was the perfect punishment for the weight of our sins. So no, it was not divine child abuse. The second objection that I want to consider that is often raised against penal substitutionary atonement is the objection that God's anger should not need to be satisfied in the first place. Why could he not simply overlook the sins of mankind? If he rules his spirit so well, if he is so slow to anger, if he is so abounding in steadfast love, well then why is he angry in the first place? Isn't it a sign that he is some kind of small and capricious God if he is so enraged at our lowly human sins? According to this objection, They don't so much find fault with the father for crushing the son, but they find fault with the whole idea of punishment in the first place. Why, if God is truly over everyone and everything, must he punish sins? Why not simply remain unmoved by human actions and remain in his heavenly peace? One analogy that this objection makes is again, you could visualize a father or a parent who is angry at something going on in the home, and in their anger, they punch through a wall. And then they feel better afterwards because they have somehow unleashed their anger. And so they say that this idea that God laid sins upon Jesus, that, that Jesus bore the wrath of God, pictures God again as this angry deity who had to let his emotions out on something before he could forgive mankind. Again, is this what Jesus did at Calvary? Was he simply the punching bag for an angry God? Well, this objection assumes that there is something wrong with anger or wrath in the first place. It assumes that if God is angry at all, then God is somehow smaller or less than what we should really conceive of him as. Now, of course, sadly for humans, this is almost always true. Our anger, our wrath are almost always self-centered and unjust, at least in some degree. But if this is the case with man, that does not mean that this is the case with God. We know that anger is not always sinful. At a minimum, we have the command of Ephesians 4.26. It says, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. So it is possible to be angry and to not sin. Second, we see in the Bible that sometimes we are actually commanded to be angry. So Psalm 97.10, for example, it says, O you who love the Lord, hate evil. Oh, you who love the Lord, hate evil. Or in the New Testament, Romans 12, verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil. Abhor what is evil. We are supposed to have this emotion toward evil, this rage, this anger about evil that is honoring to God, that is good in the sight of God. Indeed, I think that if we err in the church today, it is probably that we are not troubled enough 
at the evil and injustice in the world. Some evils and injustices really should make us angry. And I hope that all of you have had the experience at some point of reading some stories in the news of things that happen and just feeling rage rise in your heart against evildoers who would do things that we see in the news. And so it is not always wrong that wrath, that rage rises up in our hearts. Indeed, this perspective that God should just somehow overlook all the horrors of mankind can only possibly be spoken by someone who has not been very touched by those horrors themselves. Someone may ask, why must God be so angry about sin? Isn't that small of him to be so angry about our sin? But then what do they say when gross injustices occur? What would they say when their whole family is kidnapped in the Holocaust and taken to a concentration camp? What would they say when their child is murdered for some cash? There is great evil in the world and it is no fault of God's for being enraged about it. Indeed, it would be a fault of God if he were not enraged at it, if he were to simply sit above it and not let it bother him. The fact that God is so wrathful, that he is so enraged at the sins of mankind, at your sin and at my sin, is a clear sign of his holiness, of his righteousness. And so, no, it is not wrong or evil that God should have some way to remove his wrath at anger and sin to punish sin. Sin is indeed an evil thing, and anyone whose heart is rightly calibrated toward good and evil is going to know that as much as we rejoice when we see mercy and love and gentleness and kindness, to the same degree we should rightly be filled with anger and wrath at injustice and violence. And so God is not in the wrong to remove his wrath in the person of his son. Rather, this shows his enormous love that his wrath would not only be directed against those who actually deserve his wrath, but he would actually turn his wrath upon himself. That all the anger that is due to us, his anger that he would revert to himself, that he would take all of our sins, that all of his anger would be poured out on us so that now we can know only his mercy, know only his love. This is a clear sign of the greatness of God and the holiness of God. The final objection that I want us to consider to penal substitutionary atonement is that it is unjust to put the sin of one person upon some other innocent party. This is the objection that my high school friend raised when she said, what did the poor sheep do to deserve that? Could it ever be just for the sins of one person to be punished in another person or even in an animal or some other thing. That whole system, that whole framework just seems somehow to violate the principles of justice. 
Well, I don't want to dwell for a long time on the justice of the Old Testament sacrificial system, on the killing of sheep and goats. I mean, I must admit that no matter which way you cut it, that practice was grossly unfair to those sheep and to those goats. And no matter which way you cut it, penal substitutionary atonement is unfair to the one who will bear the punishment. But does this practice somehow violate justice? Well, in the case of sheep, we know from Hebrews 10 verse 4 that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. And so in the killing of animals in the Old Testament, we know that those animals could not actually bear the sins of the people. No, those animals were commanded to be slaughtered as a physical lesson to the people of God about the horror and the evil of sin. And so we do see that the truth is that God is no animal rights activist. He thought that human knowledge and awareness of sin was more valuable than the life of an animal. The animal gave its life But, Lord willing, that animal's life would give knowledge to the Israelites of something that would benefit them for all eternity. Namely, the horror of sin and how they must turn away from it. How they cannot continue in it. And so, in the case of those sheep and goats, yes, it was unfair. But the horrors of sin deserve our greatest attentions. Even the killing of innocent animals. But what's in the case of Jesus Christ? Is justice somehow violated for Jesus to take a punishment that we deserve? Can the transfer of guilt even work in this way? Well, to understand this, how to respond to this objection, we need two principles. The first principle we need to understand is that blood truly can wash away sin. So Leviticus 17 verse 11 says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. And so even though it was not the case that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin, it is the case that blood, that life, can atone for sin. As it was spoken, even in the beginning of Genesis, the wages of sin is death. And so when blood is shed as a consequence for sin, it does take away that sin. It is the fitting punishment for sin. So blood can wash away sin. But the second principle we need, and this one is admittedly more mysterious, is that Jesus truly can represent us. Jesus truly can represent us. 1 Corinthians 15.22 gives us this analogy. It says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And so, You see that even though a bull, a goat, could not substitute for us, could not take our place, Jesus can. Jesus can 
for the primary reason that God has made Jesus to be a head over us, to be a representative for us. God gave mankind two great representatives. The first representative that he gave to mankind was Adam, the forefather of the whole human race. And again, it is mysterious, but what Scripture teaches us is that when Adam sinned, when he walked away from God, that sin of Adam was then laid upon the whole human race because Adam was our representative. Romans 5 verse 18 says, Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men. And so there is a sense in which our own death, our own sinfulness is all the result of us being connected to Adam in the first place. We are not so much judged for our own sins, but for being in a state of sin that we inherited from our first father, Adam. And so when Jesus came, when he was born as the great second Adam, When he was born through a virgin woman, having no earthly father, he became that second head of mankind. And this head of mankind we connect with, we enter into by faith. That is, when we trust, when we believe that Jesus really has borne our sins that all of our trespasses truly have been laid upon him, then we form a union, a connection with Jesus such that when he dies upon the cross, we die upon the cross. And when he rises again from the dead, we rise again from the dead to newness of life. And so Romans 5.18 goes on to say that just as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so it is fundamentally this principle of union that makes it possible for our sins to be laid upon another. It is this principle of union that answers this objection that someone else cannot bear your sins. It is true that I myself could not bear your sins. The average human being cannot bear the sins of another We often use the courtroom analogy for the gospel saying the judge comes down off the bench and he takes the punishment. Well, if the judge is God himself, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, then that analogy works fine. But of course, a human judge cannot bear the punishment of another that would be injustice. And yet, I believe that because God has so ordered the world, that all of humanity is either in Adam or in Jesus Christ, that it means that we do have a fitting and a good and a just substitute for our sins in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is that great and second Adam so that 
When he dies for sins, we can die with him. Our sins truly can be borne by this Messiah, by this Savior, Jesus Christ, and could not have been borne by anyone else. And so, beloved, in all these ways, I hope you see the glories of penal substitutionary atonement, that any objection that comes against it is bound to fail. Because we have a God who is good and who is loving, whose wrath is perfectly calibrated to justice. And because He is our God, we know and we can trust that our sins have indeed been atoned for on that cross. That if you trust in Jesus Christ this morning, even if you've never trusted in him before, you can trust in him right now and your sins will be laid upon him. And when your sins are laid upon him, there is no more possibility for judgment, beloved. There is no more possibility for punishment. Instead, you are fully accepted in Jesus Christ. And God's love remains upon you forever. With that, let me pray for us, and then we'll turn to a time of prayer together, prayers of petition and prayers of confession to God. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for establishing this great exchange where our sins can be laid upon Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ dies the death that we deserve and we get life eternal. God, would this reality, would this doctrine, this truth truly transform our hearts, make us people who are full not of fear of punishment, fear of death, but people who are full of joy and freedom and praise to you. God, would you hear now our prayers of confession and petition to you.